we're terrible at understanding stories of collectives, and there are a few reasons. So this is a systems problem, right? And this is why we struggle with systems. We're really good at individual narratives. And journalists will do this all the time. People writing books will do this all the time. They'll frame a major event around an individual. So you can travel through in their shoes and get a sense for it. And they maybe step out. Religious sermons do this as well, right? There's sort of parables and things. They tell you about individuals. We're individuals. So, but it's much harder to understand 300 million people, like the collective behavior. You know, and this is why we've created all these simulations from the sort of simple toy model things to, you know, full-blown things. We don't have a good understanding for how people behave in large collectives. They can seem strange because it is a different thing. But we do this mistake of imprinting individuals on top. And many people will be sort of comfortable if one individual was running the whole thing, right? And that manifests in various ways. There's religions, you know, the idea that Trump is in charge or Obama was in charge, you know, there's a, a hand at the wheel, Leviathan, because that fits into our limited cognitive capacity. So the stories of the many are outside of our mental frame. But just that what we sort of walk around with naturally. We have to really train ourselves to kind of understand them. <laughs> When human beings saw the first pictures of Earth from space, the impact was transformative. New instruments for taking in new vistas, for understanding our relationships and contexts at a different scale, have in some ways defined the history of not just science, but the evolution of intelligence. And now, thanks to the surfeit of textual data offered up by social media, researchers can peer into the dynamics of human society and analyze the turbulent flows of stories that drive our collective behavior and twist time itself into nonlinear structures. As a species, we are on the cusp of a new epoch in which the body politic reveals itself to us in real time like a single human body in an MRI. How will these tools change how we think about the world? and what it means to be a person in it. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week we speak with Peter Dodds of the University of Vermont's Complex Systems Center and Computational Story Lab about how to use Twitter data as a kind of satellite telescope observing the collective mentation of humankind, what it reveals and what it doesn't, opening a cornucopia of questions about how we measure sentiment and the power of narrative for social control. Tis the season, so if you value our research and communication efforts, please, please consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash podcast give. You can find numerous other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Avid readers, please take note that SFI Press's latest volume, Complexity Economics, Proceedings of the Santa Fe Institute's 2019 Fall Symposium, is now available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle ebook formats. Thank you for listening. Peter Dodds, welcome to Complexity Podcast. It's a delight to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. So I like to start these with, before we dive into the numbers and the 
the sort of God's eye view of things that you have revealed through your research. <laughs> I'd like to start with a bit, of, <laughs> we'll see. a bit of human background, anchor this in a, a bit of story. You like wrangling stories. So what what story can we have about how you got into your life as a researcher and what drew you into the kind of questions that that animate and inspire you to do the kind of work that you do? Well, so that could be a long story. I, uh, but I, I just, I guess in short, I'm sort of a, a meaning seeker. You know, what's the, I'm kind of one of those people, like what, why does anything exist? Kind of all this sort of stuff. And uh, so that's drawn me to think about lots of things uh, through my life, um, you know, religion, science, all these, all these pieces, all these uh, ideas of how you should live your life and how we are living our lives. So I'm, I'm, I am just sort of this curious person. But uh, in terms of coming to think about complexity, you know, there's a friend of mine, handed me, I'm from Australia originally, and a friend of mine handed me a book and said, you should read this book. And it was Mitchell Wardrop's complexity book. This is a long time ago when I was a, an undergrad. And I read it, and I thought this was fantastic. So that, you know, I ended up getting to the States as a result. And, um, you know, since then, it's just been, what, what can we... You know, again, like I said, I want to understand kind of everything. So I, I, I could have, you know, you could have ended up in string theory, but that's not where I am, right? So uh, this opening of thinking about human systems and systems that humans are attached to. So, you know, climate change is part of that. This is kind of everything we touch on now. What I think of as socio-technical systems has just opened up and opened up over the last 20 years. And it's... Um, you know, I've just been drawn along, and uh, and and there's there's always something new to think about. But I will just sort of end up by saying, you know, we want to create things that are meaningful, that that help the world, um, that matter. And, and I think that's we're seeing that in our students over the years, the way that they've been attracted to the work we do. It's it's so that's good. You know, it is. You know, we want to do meaningful things. We're not just aliens watching humanity. We are we're part of the system, and uh, we care. Yeah. So yeah, you brought up aliens. That, <laughs> the fabulous Carl Sagan, you know, we are the universe becoming aware of itself type mm -hmm. sentiment that I think really sings through the work that you do and the work that you and a community of people around you are doing at the Vermont Complex Systems Center and elsewhere. The right place to start here, I think, is just with the the idea that the kind of work that you do is even possible. So, yeah. you know, I would like to talk a little bit about the background and the conceptual framing for Story Wrangler, mm -hmm. because this is the kind of thing that, I don't know, maybe when I was in high school would have been in a like minority report style science fiction film. <laughs> And now here we are, and it's in one sense utterly prosaic and mundane, and in another sense completely wondrous and numinous and honestly kind of terrifying. And we'll put a pin in that and get back to that. But I'd love to hear you talk about how this project came to be and you know how people started thinking about how to ask and answer these kinds of questions. Well, I should say, uh, I, I think uh, thinking of stories collectively and at the population level is still still pretty primitive. But I think it's, I, I've come to feel it's just a crucial, crucial thing in science for us to understand 
how people tell stories, how they believe stories, how they spread stories, how that varies across cultures. And I know many different fields have studied this for a long time, right? But I think there's a, an opening now in this sort of big data world to maybe start to create something that's really solid and, and endures. So, well, it goes back to us measuring happiness was the sort of first big data thing that we did. And, and before that, I'd done experiments looking at how things spread, how things take off. So I think we have an understanding of fame from that. So they were, they were experiments. And that was enabled by, finally, we're not studying 100 people in a psych 101 course, right? Or, or doing surveys. Those things are still important, right? So our work doesn't, you know, I would never pretend that our work wipes out other fields. It's, it, it augments it and adds to it. So going back in time, you know, we, we started to see that we could, we could do these experiments that involved hundreds of thousands of people. And then data came along, the social data, and you know, it's, to some extent, it's the social media stuff, the blogs before that, perhaps. So, so people are putting these expressions online. It's not being filtered through experts and, and a few anymore. You're starting to get the murmurings, the saturations of a, of a populace, you know, and how do you, what do you do with that? I mean, it's just, okay, what do we do with that? I mean, we can see the stars, right? So we start off looking at them for thousands and thousands of years. Eventually, we get some telescopes together, pretty terrible to start with, but, you know, we keep getting better with that. And then we have arrays of telescopes, and it switches completely to, you know, much more of a data-driven kind of situation where you're not necessarily ever looking through a telescope. So I feel like I looked at that, that sort of history, the history of building thermometers, the history of building clocks, you know, and if you go back and think about how we just, we couldn't measure these things well. And in some cases, like temperatures, this example, I guess there's some argument about this, but maybe we never thought that was a, that was a number that you could measure, right? Someone else could have, make another instrument and measure the same number as you, that there was some sort of human element to it that made it fuzzy. It's different to measuring distance, you know, distance, we really like, okay, distance. You know, we're so solid on distance that that becomes this meta uh, substructure for the metaphors for everything we use, even time. You know, we talk about long time. We, you know, distance is this fundamental thing. So, you know, we've slowly, as scientists, gone out and measured everything. And I think of basic science as describe and explain, right? And then after that, you get to create, you get to do all and predict all those things. We, we kind of race to prediction. But, you know, the core for me is describe and explain. And you've got to describe. And, and so I feel like we're, we're a bit in that game. We try to do everything, but we're a bit in that game when we start to measure what we'll get to here as stories. But it, it was, you know, what do we do with all of these inputs coming in from, from the outside world? And this is now through the, the internet. You know, what, what can we sort of sense from that? And, and I, we had this big idea to start with was what about happiness, right? So at least that puts us up. That gives us something we think is important for society. You know, it's a bit of a popular framing, but it's it's different to GDP, right? You know, at the end of a news, so many sort of news pieces like local news, like the you know the market went up to the you know it's like this really important thing. Same with the weather. Here are these basic things of today. What about something like happiness, well-being, right? Th these are harder things to measure. And in fact, when we went to look at how to measure happiness, and this is from text and ultimately from Twitter and books and all sorts of things, what we look back on, on psychological research, happiness is really the first dimension of meaning. And this is based on work asking people and these semantic differentials, how do you feel about something on some semantic differential? Rough to smooth, happy to sad, you know, angry to, you know, whatever, right? All sorts of things. 
um, powerful to weak? Do you feel in control? Do you feel out of control? Uh, excited to bored? And and it turns out that the, these old studies at least came up with these sort of three main dimensions and their happiness, valence, this kind of happy, sad axis. And that's really the dominant one. And then excitement. Do you feel excited versus bored? And then power, dominance. So we sort of stripped off that first dimension and we applied it to all sorts of things, including you know, the Count of Monte Cristo or Frankenstein, right? So you, you do this with books trying to measure happiness in this kind of big reading way, right? And we've done it with Twitter, which we'll get to a story wrangle. We've done it with, with Twitter and that goes back to 2008. It's daily. We're going to have in, within day stuff soon, I think. But it's measuring what we're trying to do there is, you know, just take all of Twitter in different languages and you don't want to read 50 million tweets a day, right? We don't want anyone to do it. You know, we, no one should do it. But, you know, we can talk to our computers and, and, and uh, you know, and they, it can sleep past them and they can get a feel for the whole thing. And what we've been able to show is that that correlates at say state level well with Gallup polls. It connects well with major events that happen in the world, particularly negative events. They really, they really stand out. You know, and there's still a long way to go with this, but this is a, a kind of a, I don't know, it's a, as you said, sort of a remarkable thing to be able to build. And we're very worried about it from the start of thinking of the, this leading to like Brave New World or, you know, being part, you know, this sort of these foundational texts that we should worry about all the time or 1984, right? So there's the big, we're watching everyone kind of thing. Of course, we only look at public stuff. And then, you know, what, what do you do? What's your public policy as a result? You know, what, what do you do? And our framing is this is just something more to put on the dashboard, right? You're flying a plane. We understand with planes, we want lots of instruments in front of us. We don't want just one number that says plane okay, plane not okay. That's a bad dashboard. But we have a, and I, I will say this more generally about complexity. We have a huge proclivity as human beings and you know, scientists inclusive to really want to measure something with one number. Like here's this huge complicated thing. And we would just, let's just get it down to one number because then we can talk about it. It'll be easy. It's a real disservice, especially from the scientific community. So you know, we're very mindful of that. We're trying to just put another number on a dashboard, and then we want people to, to look at that. I mean, if you think about ecosystem collapse or something like that, there are a number of dimensions that you should be looking at. You know, you don't want to be just sort of thinking about some big number that's coming going up and down. You want to be looking at keystone species, that, you know, all these different parts, all sorts of systems like this. So that's the happiness work, and that's ongoing. And what we're trying to get to now is you know, and many people are sort of, I think, coming around to this, like, how do you measure the stories that are being told by a population? And we deliberately want to be away from individuals because we don't want to be invading their space. We don't want to say, look, this is the, this person did this. So, so a lot of our stuff is very thermometer-like. It's very distant. So it just, by its nature, will not function at a small scale. I mean, I think there's both a privacy concern there that's valid. And then the second is just also it doesn't really work. People will tell you it works, but you know, you, you hand someone a tweet and put it through their machine and it says happy or sad, maybe. But I think that's pretty dangerous. You know, individual senses, these are, these are hard things to kind of, and you wouldn't want to, well, I feel you wouldn't want to base your whole decision of how to do something based on one, one statement. All right, we can argue about that. But yeah, so for instance, Parkland happens. And you know, now I'm well prepared to understand what happened the next day, which was conspiracy theories emerged. And I remember going to YouTube just to see what the balance was. And there's sort of typical thing where you search and they, they give you 20 results, the 20 top hits, 18 of them were conspiracy theory videos you know, about crisis actors and so on. And two were just straight up news pieces. 
how do we measure that and how do we track them? How do we track just, and, you know, and, and also just, you know, not conspiracy theories aside, like reasonable narratives around something. It's hard to know what's going on. How do we do that? What are the stories that people hold in, the, in, in a population and, and how is that trending over time? And again, you know, this is not to create a system of control, but it's partly to give people back information. You know, like, here's your world. People are not happy in this year compared to last year. Or here are the stories everyone's talking about. So you may think because, and I think this is really a fundamental thing about social phenomena, is what you might think about what everyone else is doing. Wow, I don't know, right? So you don't want to ever really project your own family onto the world or you know, what happened to you with your friend. You know, you can think about that. But it's it's pretty fraught, and I think you know we need we need to have these sort of these these big picture views. So feeding back to individuals, feeding back to populations, but also to policymakers. I do think I, I, you know they need to see this in their dashboard, not just money went up. So you're talking about the hedonometer, <clears throat> yes, which people should go look up online. It's it's glorious. It's I mean glorious in a, a kind of a tragic way because you do actually see this. We've been slumping uh, as yeah. a society as measured by this instrument over the last yeah. several years. And that, that sort of begs its own question about the causes behind that. I think we might be able to poke at that question um, throughout the rest of this conversation. But then this other piece, which you and your co-authors on this this piece laid by, is it uh, Thayer Al-Shabi? Yes. Yes. So yeah. the yeah. Story Wrangler. It's a team. We have a team. Yes. A large team. Yeah. Really interesting article, Story Wrangler, a massive exploratorium for sociolinguistic, <laughs> cultural, socioeconomic, and political timelines using Twitter. Yes, quite quite a, uh, yeah. a a masterful mashup of all kinds of different interests in this one paper. And you make a point here that, you know, people might be familiar with Google Ngrams. Google Ngrams do not give you a sense in spite of what you might think of the popularity of a given word or phrase, because it's just how many books were published in that year. And it's not how many people were actually talking about those books. So like you say here, actually 1984 or uh, the Percy Jackson books of Rick Riordan, they're read and reread, they're shared, spread around. And they become so, part of culture. Yeah, they're enormous. Right. Yeah. So this this, yeah. this question, not only of sort of the number of species, but of the interactions of species within this mimetic ecosystem, if I can annoy some people with my flagrant <laughs> use of the ecosystems and memes in this conversation. They will take but, off eventually. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's just so there's so much here, you know. No, no. And so I'm, I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about, first of all, I think you're right. I think that this, it's very clear that reading this work, looking at the diagrams in this paper, that what we're seeing is sort of like the earth from space, you know, like Stuart Brand petitioning to get NASA to declassify those blue marble photographs back in the 60s. And now it's like, well, here it is, you know, and like maybe Twitter was doing this. We know Facebook is looking at this stuff, the orbital view of people in this way that, they, you know, they have massive teams of internal researchers, but it's awesome to actually have your hands on this kind of a dashboard and to be able to search. I was looking at, because uh, I'm a dork, I was looking at dinosaurs. <laughs> on Story Wrangler 
And then I was looking at where the spikes were, and then I cross-referenced it to Jurassic, and sure enough, yeah. the major spikes were concurrent with the release of Jurassic Park movies and video games. So, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But it was nice to see that there is a sort of a, a hum of continuous interest in dinosaurs. I was like, yes. So, so you know, that's the kind of the geographic features of the noosphere, right? Like V.I. Vernadsky's notion that what we have done is we've created this this layer of mental activity around the planet. And you and your colleagues have added this extremely important dimension, which, again, is the relative population sizes and rates of transfer and the relationships between all of these different ideas as they're flying around in this, this meme space. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you actually went about partitioning this, doing the research, organizing this data, and then maybe perhaps, you know, what were some of the, the things that surprised you in your findings? In this piece. Well, I, so I want to say overall, we've, we've set up this site at storywrangling.org, and it's just a, an opening, I think, to an enormous amount of research. So we're really excited. So in part, we're putting this out, very much in part, we're putting this out as a, as, as a massive sort of data resource for people. And we're kind of excited about what that, that will build. But it's something that we've wanted to do for years, and we've made little sort of folks in this direction. But this is going back to 2008 is when we first wrote to Twitter and, and my colleague Chris Danforth wrote to them and just out of the blue and said, could we maybe get some tweets? And there were only four people working there. It was a, you know, a small thing at the time. And they said, oh, sure, we have this little feed. So we've been getting 10% of the tweets since then. So in terms of, you know, from the data source point of, point of view, that's how it started, just from an email. And largely uh, at no cost, which has been a tremendous service. So Twitter has gone through various stages and it will keep going through them, being knocked as being frivolous and silly and it will go away. Of course, it's been rather important, I think, in the last five or six years. It's also perhaps held a place that Facebook hasn't in terms of you know, this, if people put quotes out, put statements out. It's, it's, it's the stuff that gets embedded in other news stories. So they've really kind of held that space quite well. But it is remarkable that so much is on Twitter. The dominant thing I'll just say from the start is, is kind of K-pop, right? So K-pop is enormous and, and we just have to acknowledge that. But, you know, music is, sports is enormous, you know, these and movies, as you pointed out, right? These, and some of that is advertising. Some of it's just people are excited about it, TV shows. So that's sort of, I feel like, just to kind of talk about what it is, that's become to me like the resting state of the thing. Like when, when, when Twitter is going along, you know, when the world is sort of going along somewhat peacefully, Nothing terrible has happened. That's the stuff that's going to be bubbling to the top, which seems okay. It's sort of water cooler discussion writ large, right, at, at, at a population scale. But to really process this data well, it's taken many years, graduate students to come along and, and try all sorts of things. And we, you know, we use a supercomputer here at UVM, which seems um, maybe a lot for tweets, but it's a big database. And we'll have to say that emojis have proved to be an incredible complication from a data point of view. I mean, they're just, they're, they're curious animals, right? I mean, if you're an ecologist, this would be like trying to catch ghosts or something. You know, it's really, really, really a mess. So we've dealt with that and, uh, you know, they're all in there as well. You can see the rise of emojis in particular ones and structures. So this is one of these things, you, you know, you will see, like you mentioned Google engrams, right? So that's from books. There's a nice little viewer. 
and it's easy to go to. And and as a user, you think, oh, this is really easy. It's a thing. But the back end of that is really, really hard to create because every day you have to look at the forest. I like the ecology thing. There's this forest of, you know, this ecology of words that's put out and we have to kind of take it all apart and count up all the little bits. And then we look at the next day, you know, how much did this forest turn over from day to day to day? And for Twitter, it's pretty rapid. You know, a new species can come and go in a day in terms of an engram or whatever. There is just so much to look at. You can think about the entraining of like really basic things, like how we function because we're in a solar system, right? So you see the pattern of the months and the and, um, lunar cycles and all those things and years. I mean, that, that's going to sound trivial, but it, you know, it's there. You could kind of actually detect that from Twitter if you looked at it and you had nothing else. You could figure out 365.2. It's, it's, it's a curious thing. But then you start to see you know, uh, events that we celebrate every four years or something like Olympics. You start to see those kinds of spikes. And then it gets more complicated. You get into political events and turmoil and and changes. I mean, I'm just looking at one now that we've been thinking about, which is the rise of the term fake news. Right? So we have separate work on Trump and all the tweets that contain Trump. So you can imagine- We'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get that. We'll get that. So just to connect to that later, you know, it's really after Trump um, comes into, uh, that he's elected. And I can talk about that little bit of dynamic there. But fake news goes from, you know, just the term that appears a little bit to just completely new state. And now it's a stably used term. It's just in the language. It becomes a, a species in the forest that was not there at all. And now it's just everywhere in the forest. And it's just a normal thing to encounter if you're walking into this forest of, of engrams. One of the next pieces we're trying to build now, this is kind of complicated. So you've got every day, all these words are competing with each other. And, and that's, you know, we'll rank them, right? We rank the words. And, and, and we have many, there are, you know, 100 languages. So you can look through it in, in that way. But we also then want to be able to, to do this next step, which is to say, okay, you want to find all the tweets that contain news, and you want to then look at the story wrangler for that. You want that forest. So we're going to take that subset of tweets, which you know conceptually is easy to think about, but basically it means there's universes within universes within, you know, there is just this incredible sort of multiverse, linguistic, lexical multiverse, if you like, right? So you're going to say, I want... I can go to this forest and I'm just going to sort of take all the oak trees just and, and everything else deletes. And then you look in, in that subset. So I think that's going to be powerful in terms of um, looking at how meaning changes around terms like just news, for example. So fake news, you know, that, that word is not attached to news. And then suddenly it is. You know, what else has happened around a term which is otherwise very stable? News is very stable over 10 years. The word news, fine. If you just look at it, you say, well, you know, I guess it's just a fine thing. But it's the stuff that's, you know, curled around it, rich, complicated, and, and you know, really, you know, in the world we live in, really meaningful, right? This is a really powerful thing that's happening in this sort of transition to delegitimizing the press and so on. So it's a, you know, we have this online piece. You can play around with it. We have, I think, a, a really important part, which is, and, and you mentioned it before with, with Google Books. So we had an article... I guess it was published in 2015, where we brought out this critique of Google Books, which at that time sort of remains now, this kind of incredible lens into the last couple of hundred years, especially. And so that's taking all books and just counting up the words. So each year it's, it's at the year scale. The problem, yeah, is it's, it's the same as going to a library and every book gets one vote and you don't look at how much a book has been checked out or read, if you could see that as well. And so that's obviously not right, right? It will give you something and it will look like popularity because 
you know, the word the is huge, you know, uh, around the world wars, uh, well, those words pick up, but it doesn't tell you exactly what people were reading. We do this all the time with corpora, I should say, too, right? I mean, we, we do this all the time. People will take the New York Times, study the New York Times as it goes through time, but not index it by which articles were read. Because in part, you know, it's easy to do that first part. You just have the New York Times. Here's a copy of the paper kind of thing. And I think sometimes we know that, but sometimes we forget. So with Story Wrangler, we have built into it, there's a little toggle, it's include retweets or not, which is this very nice feature that we have for the system. We can just see what was amplified. So we can kind of recreate the amplification that's in the system, or we can dial it down. We can you know, pull that away. And it's been a really interesting thing to look at. So Twitter has deliberately recently tried to tame the amplification that's on its system. And it's something I've talked about for years. So for instance, Instagram, for whatever problems it has, it doesn't have a like a re-Instagram, it doesn't have that kind of copy. And you talk about memes and so on. It doesn't have that kind of built-in where you throw it out to everyone else. It's not built in. Twitter, of course, does. And you know, Facebook as well. So if you remove all the friction and make that really easy, you know, amplification is really easy, then you know, you're basically lighting fires all the time or, or, or enabling it to spread through your, again, let's go back to your forest. So you can see, we can see that that's actually, we have these little contagiograms. You can see that that's being tamped down. And that's not like they're deleting accounts or deleting, they're just simply making it a little bit physically harder. Like you have to click on two or three things to retweet something purposefully. Anyway, so that's a really important thing here. So you, some things really do get affected by whether they're amplified or not, right? You know, when you, when you turn that piece off. So you, actually, I think maybe, maybe a simple thing to say, well, a lot of junk tweets, a lot of bots and so on, you know, they produce a lot of junk. They don't get amplified. So maybe astrology tweets, which are just sort of thrown out into the world. You'll see them if you turn off the retweets. They're kind of like they bubble up a little bit. But this is a forest that hasn't had the very imperfect and erroneous filter of humans and, and bots sitting on top, amplifying things and spreading things. It hasn't had that filter. And we don't always amplify the right things. We know that. And that's from some of our work and other people's work, right? Fame, the things that take off, they aren't always right at all. But certainly having a system where nothing is amplified is, is also pretty weird. It's funny that you mentioned that. I was looking at the uh, n-gram history for complex systems and like okay. one of the all-time high spikes was actually captured text from the little preview that you get when you shared a horoscope it was an, it was it was mentioned in an aries horoscope in like 2016 and i was like all the work that we have done to promote this thing and like of course you know so you you really do get it you get a clear idea of what is actually capturing people it's interesting that you know to extend this forest fire analogy certain species thrive in systems that are regularly cleansed by fire and other species take over and, and then they don't. And yeah. And so I think that's sort of where Twitter is with this whole thing. You know, they're, they're actually trying to sort of shape the ecosystem, mm. trying to make it less habitable or inviting for invasive species right. that, right. you know, that know how to capture attention. Right. Right. And, you know, yeah, so, so you have tweets that pour kerosene all over themselves, and then you know, basically they just you know, I mean, most of your average person they're tweeting about a cat or they're tweeting about something, and so they're not trying necessarily. But if you have a sophisticated outfit, you can you can make it happen. So your algorithms are, have a built-in structure that you have to be very mindful of, and people are very clever. 
there's one question in here that I mean, this should possibly be self-evident in retrospect. But you and your co-authors mentioned in this paper, we see that time series for scientific advances generally show shock-like responses with little anticipation or memory. To think about what you're actually reading as a kind of data visualization of, again, the anticipation or memory of society, then, I don't know, that's, that's telling. That says something about the way that we habituate, I guess, to discovery. You know, like, obviously, we're not going to necessarily expect a particular, I mean, that's the whole point, right? We're not going to expect a particular discovery. But the fact that it just seems to fade from collective memory so quickly seems to say something about, perhaps it's best understood through the counterexample that you give, which is CRISPR, which is, Mm. you know, and especially it's something that seems to really have captured the public imagination and has landed in, in a way with people that they understand it has, you know, ramifications that something like the discovery of gravity waves does not. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on what it takes mm-hmm. for something to persist in cultural memory or, you know, what this reveals about the mechanisms of cultural memory and its relationship to anticipation. I mean, this is such a profound question. I, uh, when I mentioned fake news before, that's really actually what we're trying to get at there. We're trying to find all of the, the species that invaded and became new durable elements of, of the system. So I think we can actually do that, at least you know, in this circum, you know, for this sort of Twitter example, we can do it in kind of an exhaustive way, right? So we'll have this, here's a list of things that became part of what we talk about. They became sort of the, the backbone of our conversation, normal, everyday, durable things. And then we can look at the taxonomy of them, right? So fake news is a political thing. Like Inception, for example, that's, that that movie really blew people's minds and still confuses, you know, it's, it's still difficult to deal with. Uh, but, that, you know, that became a thing, right? That became a thing. But for something to really take off, it has to get bound up in stories. It has to end up in stories, it has to end up in movies, it has to happen, you know, your average person talking about it. it has to become something that they will use. And, and so when we see something become durable, that's what's happened. Uh, you know, Gravity Waves was a cool story. We're kind of, there's a predisposition perhaps, and I'm speculating, that science will produce cool things now and then, and we'll get to be excited about it, especially like space, you know, that's really cool. But there's a huge amount of competition for attention and, and the stories that are bubbling and so on. The best producers of that, you know, the most durable ones, as I was saying before, are movies and sports and music because there's this constant sort of creation of things. And, you know, where do you get fandoms? Where do you get fandoms? Fandoms build around those things. You have a sense of fandom around Trump, right? I mean, the, the sort of you, you could kind of build them out as analogies. So sort of analogous kind of groups. Uh, so when does that happen? This is for this is for sort of cultural products. For terms, that's that's something else. You know, something becomes just something people, you know, like I don't know, someone in a family says to someone else, you know, that's fake news. Like it becomes kind of a joke, a term that you can use at any point. I think we can do that. Of course we can't go back this is Twitter, right? So we have this incredible resolution, this temporal resolution. And so we're where you know that's something we're we're sort of enjoying. Of course, it doesn't go back thousands of years, so that's a that's a, a loss for us. It would be amazing to have tweets from whatever period you like, but yeah, right, yeah. So no, I do think scientific things are kind of fraught in that sense. They they do need 
So science does need storytellers, of course, and it's really important for that to become part of popular culture, for movies and these things to excite people and to, to make it kind of stick. And it will be interesting to see the vaccine, right? That vaccine mm. is moving along, but it's, you know, there isn't a, there's been a jump in 2020 because it's just being talked about all the time. Essentially just a jump with coronavirus. Coronavirus, you know, pandemic becomes real on March 12th. And then uh, you, you see on our story wrangle of your that the vaccine just sort of goes into a different kind of regime. It's just being talked about a lot, but it's been talked about a lot very recently, of course, with the, the Pfizer and the other company you know, s- s- claiming that they're, they're very close to, to you know, asking for, I guess, permission to sort of build and distribute. So, you know, that's a scientific achievement that I think, you know, may you, we may see more of a durable response to it. I've always wondered what would happen if there was just a straight up clear cut cure for cancer or something like that. What would happen with that? How would people re- respond around that? I will say people, people do tend to forget things pretty quickly. There's a lot of stuff passes away. And so that's been of great interest to kind of find what becomes durable. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff you think, oh, yeah, that's a big deal, but it's just a blip. Yeah. It seems like the right foothold to pivot or leverage mm-hmm. ourselves into this other paper that you lead authored on uh, computational timeline reconstructions of the stories surrounding Trump. Uh, you know, using Trump as a, as a case study to explore these concepts of story turbulence, narrative control, and what you and your co-authors call, and I love this, collective chronopathy. <laughs> this is this is so, so true. You know, th- this idea that we know that the perception of time is subjective, and we know that perception of time is linked to the pace at which a person is experiencing and has to process information. So this gets at something that you were talking about in this paper we were just discussing, which is competition for attention. And I would like to hear you introduce this piece in context of the question of, have you noticed any changes in the dynamics of attention over the history of these data sets? Because it it would seem that, for example, like almost everyone knows the Beatles, but now a musician can sell more music than the Beatles ever sold and be known by a smaller fraction of the population. And so there's something going on, it would seem, with all of that. This gets to something that you were talking about in that first paper about the way that you can use this kind of analysis to forecast social fragmentation. You know, this is aligned with uh, work that David Krakauer and I talked about in the transmission series by Miguel Fuentes, who was looking at the fragmentation of social graphs preceding social revolutions. At any rate, that's a whole basket of questions, really. But these are the thoughts on my mind when I'm reading this paper that you and your team wrote about Trump and what you found in terms of like reconstructing timelines and how you use this, you know, contagiograms to reconstruct narrative control. And then what that says about the way that we perceive time and then this, the quote unquote, as you mentioned earlier at the beginning of this call, the distances between moments and then what that means in terms of how these different histories, as they are held by different groups, how these different narrative framings are shearing against one another to create what you call story turbulence. So yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing. I'd love to hear you riff on this for a while. 
Yeah. So this, I've, this has been a couple of years of my life, just really dedicated to this. I mean, I just really wanted to understand particularly this, this idea of turbulence, right? The turnover of, of story. And that led to these other pieces, which is one is specific to Trump, but could be used for others, which is narrative control. And I'll, I'll get to that. But so because we made up this word, I sort of use the, the old pronunciation, which is chronopathy, right? So you, you've evolved it, right? That, that's what happens with, with these things. So, um, but yeah, so the feeling of time passing and, and the idea that's collective that there is an individual one, but there's also maybe something we can measure at a collective scale. But it was about story turbulence, which is just, you know, how much churn is there? And is that changing over time? Is there always, even if there are these major events and you kind of like put everything together, uh, there's just sort of this churn. But we can also look at other things like baby names. We can look at the churn of baby names. And I, so, I, or just, and you could go to Google Books and you could look at the words being used from year to year. What's, what's the turnover? Now, somewhat very famously in complex systems, there's this idea of heavy-tail distributions and ZIF distributions in particular, right, which goes back to George Kingsley. So, so it's this idea that if you rank things from biggest to smallest, then there's this heavy-tail distribution of them, and this is a power law size distribution, right? So lots of rare things or small things, some really dominant ones. And there's this idea that those distributions don't change much as you go through time, maybe, if you, if you look at you know, book to book and so on. But of course, they're categorical distributions. You know, there's a label, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, Los Angeles, New York City, if you were thinking about cities, they're actual labels, right? So if you look at this ZIF distribution, it's, you know, this, this ranking of the biggest things, and you can think of music rankings, you can think of soccer rankings, whatever you like. As you look at that through time, maybe this distribution of their sizes uh, doesn't change much, but of course, there's a lot of this turbulence. And if we look at language, the words the and of, say, in English, you know, they're pretty much at the top. So they're really pretty stable over time. There's not much change in the top 10 over hundreds of years in language use. But as you go down, you start to get more and more. And I've talked about, I've sort of framed this as turbulence and also sort of invoking this idea of, from fluids of scaling, right? That there is a scaling, that that turbulence increases the further you go down in rank. And there's, there's quite beautiful scaling that you can see. All right, so that's sort of the, to sort of put it into complex systems in general, you know, markets, I said baby names, ecological systems, like numbers of species in a, in a forest and so on. Uh, but, but text is amazing, right? There's just so much that we have. All right, so we took, if you like, we made Story Wrangler for Trump. We took all the tweets that just match Trump. And so that includes, you know, his handle, it includes Trumpet. It just, we just did a very simple thing and it was enough to work because most of the tweets are really about Trump. And it includes his retweets, you know, people retweeting. So that's built into it. And I will just back up one step and look, we have another paper where we've just simply looked at how much major political figures in the US have been talked about since 2008 on Twitter. And that's it, just very simple. And there's nothing like Trump, right? So there's this big buildup around Obama kind of, you know, ascends, or, you know, it's a real climb and he's talked about a lot on the election day in 2008. Then it starts to fade away. And then it's kind of up and down, you know, things happen, people talk about other stuff and the president matters, but it's not, you know, it's not always in view. And if you look at over time, he's sort of like maybe in the thousands in terms of rank. And that's kind of like the UK, you know, so he's sort of like, it's dominated by the US, right? The, the Twitter. So Obama and the UK kind of have a similar sort of name recognition, you know, like amplification. And if you think about marketing, right? Like how much do you want Pepsi or Coke talked about? You know, what, what would you say? Like, oh, you know, we're going to get your brand talked about. Okay, so sure, you want to be further up in the ranks. 
Well, what's crazy about Trump, Trump has, since he took off and, and won the election, has been basically in the top 300 words every day, which puts him in the realm of function words. So this is just a really, these are just function words. So he is in the last three years, three or four years, he's like the word would or man, like just, or say, just the most basic words that we use over and over again. And trumped up. You would never, he trumped up, he leveled up enormously. And he was kind of fading, you know, after the, it was sort of going down and there's all these details in, you know, what spiked and so on early on. But, you know, when he gets, he's just, it's really kind of extraordinary to, to look at. And of course, he's been talked about more than ever recently. So he's an unusual figure. There's an enormous amount of text about him, um, you know, in, in everywhere. But in terms of Twitter, we recreated this story wrangler thing for all the tweets that contain Trump. So now we've got this forest and every tweet, if you read it, will have Trump in it. And what we wanted to see is, you know, what are the sort of what's being talked about? And so we have a, a way of sort of trying to find the most narratively dominant word, which is to, you know, take the forest of words around Trump on a day and look back a year ago. So that kind of get, takes out the year signal. And, you know, what's a surprising word? Because every day, you know, you're still going to see, if you make this zip distribution, you're still going to see the and of and n, right? The, the, the basic words are still there, but you want to see what are the big movers, right? The surprising ones. And so as you look through time, you know, we've done this at day scale, week scale, month, you know, month scale to kind of like renormalize it. Of course, 2016 is about the election and it's usually his opponents, right? So he's sort of, they're, they're being talked about. When you get in 2017, suddenly things kind of really take off. This inauguration, right? That makes sense. But then pretty quickly you get to Flynn, Russia, Comey, Mueller, all those things come along. And then it can be very hard to remember all of this, I have to say, but I've looked at it a fair bit. But North Korea, that's in August, and really, and, and that leads into the Charlottesville weekend. So North Korea, like Rocket Man, all that sort of stuff, that kind of posturing, suddenly you have Charlottesville, then you have hurricanes, um, Maria, of course, being devastating. All of these events, 2017 in particular, was all, and then the Mueller report is you know, developing in the background. So we kind of get that out. So it's like creating a kind of a computationally enabling historical analysis because it sort of produces the keywords the dominant terms, one grams and two grams around a figure, in this case, Trump, and sort of throws them up and says, look, here's the backbone of what was talked about. It's true, it's through Twitter, but Twitter, you know, this is not an opinion thing. This is much more about what was the dominant stuff that was being talked about. And opinion is sort of more buried in here. So, you know, when you go into 2018, there's all this turnover again, and, you know, Kavanaugh is a big piece there, for example. But towards the 2000 end of 2019, it becomes much more about impeachment. And then 2020 is really just this extraordinary year. I mean, we've never seen anything like this in, in all of these years that we've looked at for Hedonometer or for Story Wrangler. So just to jump back to Hedonometer, there are the two events of coronavirus becoming widely accepted to be a really, you know, we talk about January and so on, but it's March 12th. NBA suspends the season. Tom Hanks announces he has coronavirus. And Trump gives a speech that doesn't go well in the, in the Oval Office and the, the markets tank. And that all sort of happens within 10 minutes in the evening of, of March 12th. It's all happening. And it's just, it's kind of crazy. You know, it's, it's sort of crazy confluence of events. He don't mean it just dropped. And then it took a long time to come back. And we've never seen a collective response. We've always seen like something bad happens. You know, there'll be memories of those words that we certainly be talked about, but it gets washed over. You know, it gets washed over. And I, look, I'll mention a particularly awful one, which was the Las Vegas shooting. This was horrific. But, you know, on our hedonometer, there's a big drop. 
and then it's gone. It doesn't mean that Las Vegas isn't still being talked about, but the, the wash of stories kind of wipes it out. When we see coronavirus, that takes a, like months to sort of get back to some kind of normal. And then George Floyd's murder pushes it down to the lowest we've ever seen. And then again, that takes sort of a month to come out of. Those sort of signals are much more like what an individual might have. And so it's like this, that's real collective trauma. Uh, these these are this is real signal of collective trauma. Never seen it before. So, you know, through our instruments. So, but for Trump, what happened in 2020 is if you go back to the start of this year, the first thing that happened was Soleimani was assassinated, right? That was the start of it. Then the impeachment comes back into view, that becomes dominant. And then coronavirus takes off and that becomes, he can't break that story. That story dominates Trump. It's around Trump for really months on end, as you might expect. But then eventually George Floyd's murder comes along and that is that allows him to talk. That is an in for him. So when we look at narrative control, what we try to sort out there is these dominant terms around Trump, how much of it is actually just due to retweets of him? You know, what fraction? And if you go back in time, you know, crooked Hillary, that's him. But also fake news. All the uses of fake news that you see connected to Trump in that kind of, that this forest we've made that's just the Trump forest. You know, whenever you see fake news, all of those fake news animals that you find in that forest, they're all retweets of him, basically. Witch hunters like that. So they're pieces he's putting out. But he could not break coronavirus. He didn't use that term. He used other terms. Some of them were you know, derogatory. But he couldn't break it. And you can look in there and you can see like Obamagate. He's trying to throw in other things. Hydroxychloroquine was something. To, but he's trying to talk about other things altogether. He's trying to talk about corruption in the Democrats. And you can see they kind of get into the top 10 words around him, but they never break this kind of, I'll use the word, wall of coronavirus that just stands in front of him and sort of what he's trying to get out publicly. But it's been much more jumbled since then. Pandemic has come back. COVID has come back. Those words have come back. So when we go to stories, let me say this too. We have old work studying pandemics after SARS, right? We, we looked at pandemics. We looked at historical pandemics. And you know, what we're able to see there is that they're the most unpredictable of natural disasters. Let me, let me say it like that. You don't know how far they're going to go. They're very difficult to contend with. There's deep uncertainty and also the potential for resurgence. And we're seeing that sort of now, right? We're in this third major wave in the US. But this idea that you think the thing is going away, but it, it, it sparks up again. So the classic, if you go to simple narratives, you know, the, the sort of core stories we have, right? There's romance, there's journey, one could argue. There's Kill the Monster. Kill the Monster is a, a story we tell over and over again. Beowulf, you know, stories where you overcome cancer. It's such an important trope. And, you know, it's such a fundamental part of survival, right? You, this terrible thing happens. And it's not like you want to get at the other end and be, you know, 10 times better. You just want to get back to where you were. And that's what pandemics are. We just want it to go away. That's why the magic bullet of a vaccine will, you know, there's something that people look to. Otherwise, it's this big collective action to try and like, you know, stop limit the spread of it. Anyway, so in terms of the story around Trump, it's been a kill the monster story in the sense of a horror movie story because it keeps coming back, right? You know, this is one of the tropes of horror movies is the monster's never dead. And you know it, you're waiting for it to pop back up. And, <laughs> right. And so it's done that. It's done that. And more recently, of course, you know, he got COVID, the, the narrative of Ginsburg's death, and then, you know, the White House uh, event, and, you know, that kind of bunch of stories there. And I will say one thing that isn't in our finished work is as this is going along, but we're watching these stories unfold, 
And it, there are points, and we haven't quantified this, you know, and, and this is sort of a great challenge, I think. What is the uncertainty of now socially, right? And 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 what is the uncertainty of now? And I I just, and this is just my gut feeling, like when Ginsburg died, there was just all these sort of possibilities. And then when Trump got in, infected with COVID, again, there was just this enormous range of possibilities. And I'm just saying what, you know, he could have died or he could have, you know, re- not, not been sick at all. He kind of ended up with this almost resurrection kind of story, right? His narrative there is is a pretty good one for him. You know, it got him. He was definitely sick, but I mean, you know, he looked pretty unwell, but he, he recovers and he's, you know, he, he gets to portray strength and sort of to tie it all together. I mean, he's a storyteller. You know, that's my view of him. He's a storyteller. And this has been story versus the virus. This has been the game. It's story versus the virus. It's been pretty successful. And let me just tell you, his fundamental, we have this other work on the overall sort of emotional arcs within books and within, within fictional works and, and what they're like. And this connects to Kurt Vonnegut, who said that you could do this, right? He thought you could do this. And, and he was upset that Michigan, I know it was University of Chicago, uh, denied him the ability to do this uh, as a thesis. He said, I, you know, I want to be able to measure the emotional arcs of stories. So we did it. And it was kind of, it's an homage to him, really. But he had this one that he would, you know, he talked about Cinderella and so on, but he had the most basic one, which is, and he described it like this, you know, there's sort of this well-being axis a man, uh, and he portrayed it like this, you know, there's this a guy, he starts out okay, and time goes this way, and something bad happens, and he gets out of it. And that's the story. And that's like, you know, like, there are many stories like that. It gets back to normal. And he called this the man in the hole story. And the thing is, actually, that's not a good framing, because it doesn't have any dynamic to it. You know, metamorphosis, man in a deepening hole story, for example, but person in a hole, shall we say. There's no dynamic to it. It doesn't tell you where it goes. But make America great again, is a story in four words. It is really spectacular. It tells you about, it indicates something about the past, the present, and the future. And of course, it's not, you know, it's stolen. It's from, it's from Reagan and Bush's, at least that's as far as I know it goes back to from their campaigns in 1980. It was, make, it was actually Let's Make America Great Again. So it was a little more collaborative, but, you know, really powerful template. And it's been reused. You know, Bill Clinton used it. Many other people have used it, right? So in terms of, you know, that's, that's what I see. And I feel like, let me just add the turbulence part because I need to need to say that. So there was a lot of turbulence and I was sort of alluding to before in 2017, lots of scrambling, right? There was just so, and what that meant was there was no memory. There was a crazy thing is happening. And we're not talking about what happened last month because it's just fallen off the lit. You know, there's only so much you can handle. There's this new thing that's just erupted. 2018, 19, it's a little more stable and you start to get more stable things like impeachment, you know, becomes more of a remembered thing and it's sticking. But, you know, there are still things like Greenland, trying to buy Greenland in August in, in 2019, right? That's, that's sort of the dominant story, which is pretty funny to re- reflect on, I think. But what you see in 2020 is a story that absolutely sticks, and it's coronavirus. And that becomes the slowest turnover around Trump that we've ever seen until George Floyd's murder. And then there's this just really, because that's the end of May, the month of June is, you know, just massive turmoil relative, you know, like you're broken from the previous story. But then both of those stories basically just persist. And so you see something like August, August starts to look like February because coronavirus is a thing again. So in terms of that nonlinearity of time, right, it, it, there's a strange thing where you can feel like it's like six months ago. Last week can seem different. But now, because, you know, right now as we're recording this, the pandemic is really raging and there's a sense of panic buying feels like March again, right? That kind of lockdowns are kind of coming. So that time feels close again. 
And, you know, maybe if you think back to some things you did in the summer, that actually may feel like years ago. But what happened then, of course, was October, the start of that is Trump getting sick with COVID or infected with it. And November, the rush and the, of stories has just been enormous. And, and we quantify that, right? So we have, we have these kind of measurements for doing this, but we, we try to actually really put a number on it. So let me just say this. So 14 days in, in April, which was, so thinking about what happened two weeks ago, April is this really slow month because nothing seems to have changed. That feels like two days now for November, like two days change in the forest, right? The forest is changing in two days in the way that it took 14 days to do back in April. But if you go to something like the summer, the summer, because the summer is starting to look like this early part of the infection, that's like six months in August starts to feel like 13 days now. If you think about how much turnover in the forest you had over six months back in August, that's happening in two weeks now. It's not linear. It's kind of a messy thing, but it's just... This is a powerful thing to look at. And we have this, you know, chronopathic equivalency heat map. You know, we have these kinds of things. It just shows you, are we untethered to the past right now? Have we lost memory of what's going on? And, and you know, how much is sticking? And we'll see. I mean, it's been, it's every month I kind of watch this thing fill in and wonder where it will end up. And it's just been sort of, I was trying to say this before, just, you just see the story in front of you just flapping in the wind. Like you're not sure where it could go. You know, what's the uncertainty of now? And right now, again, we're back in that deep uncertainty, you know, of these last couple of months. Well, this is, there's so much here. Uh, so much. Obviously, it's worth bringing up Vladimir Ilyich Lenin's quote, there are decades when nothing happens, and then there are weeks when decades happen. Yeah. And, you know, when I had uh, SFI Miller scholar Lawrence Gonzalez on the show to talk about trauma, this is what we're thinking about. You know, we're thinking about those moments where it's seared into your memory for the rest of your life, like the Chicxulub meteor impact, right? Or in general, you know, Gould and Eldritch talk about punctuated equilibrium, you know, that this notion there's just sort of a, a roiling microevolutionary flux going on at all times, and then something happens and, and, and it changes everything, and then we move on. And that's what we're seeing here. But I love that you describe in this paper the idea that a slowdown in story turnover, a drop in story turbulence is when, quote unquote, and you've now created a rigorous quantitative way of describing this term, the plot thickens. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's hard to resist. It's hard right. To resist. So I'm, I'm, but it's true. I almost put that in the title of the paper. But yeah. Oh, it's yeah. great. I mean, I'm fascinated about this because you know I remember years ago reading Doug Rushkoff's book Present Shock when everything happens now, and he was talking about you know the way that the internet in a way that I came to understand after reading his work resembles the functional MRI scans that I think it was Imperial College London did on the brain under the influence of LSD and showing how that you get this massive increase in functional connectivity between brain regions that are normally inhibiting signals between one another. And that that's like what Twitter is doing for the collective brain of humankind. And when that happens, you get this huge boost to the noise in the system. And it makes it difficult for things to, if we're going to use your forest metaphor, for things to take root. When everything is going on all at once, then an event that would have seemed epical and defining of a generation is just lost in that wash that you were talking about. And so part one is, you know, what are your thoughts on 
again, as in terms of like memory dynamics, the way that information is held in society, when we see things from space in this way, in the same way that, you know, uh, astronaut Rusty Schweikert turns around or Edgar Mitchell turns around and says, at least in the 60s and 70s, there were no definitive visible from orbit country lines. Now there are because of development and deforestation. But you get to see it in a unity that you didn't have. And it becomes clear that there is a, a self-similarity across scales in which the collective dynamics of the entire human race and our collective cognitive activity resemble really much this kind of dynamic at the individual level. But where that gets kind of weird and creepy, because I, I promised you I was going to get into the dark side, like the weaponization of this kind of a, of a tool is, again, to call back to the paper on Story Wrangler. You mentioned changes in word popularity predicting future changes in geopolitical risk, like you were just talking about here. You know, you define it here as a decline in real activity, lower stock returns, movements and capital flows away from emerging economies following the Federal Reserve. You mentioned being able to track the words crackdown and protest associated with changes in geopolitical risk index. And again, when you think about the fine line between genius and madness, right, between the increase in functional connectivity leading to a brilliant creative innovation versus a schizophrenic break in personality. We've talked on this show with Carl Bergstrom, Jevin West, with Eric Olson and Vicki Yang about polarization and divergent reality tunnels and you know what happens when the information is coming in so quickly and it's being integrated. The systems that were in place to integrate information at the collective scale are no longer satisfactory in their function. They can't keep pace with these things. And so, I mean, I guess part of the, the ominous question here is just how insane do you think the emerging collective mentation of our noosphere is right now? Like, how crazy are we collectively? And then the other is, you know, once you know how to gaslight someone, <laughs> then you can do that. And in a way, these tools, I'm sure, I mean, I know that you and your colleagues have thought about the ethical implications of being able to offer this kind of a an insight to people. So what are your thoughts on the evolutionary arms race in information asymmetry and access and the literacy around this kind of a tool and what it means in terms of the agents that are undoubtedly already using this information as leverage to divide people. Because I mean, even Gregory Bateson back in the 40s, when he was part of the OSS, pioneering schismogenesis in the Korean War was thinking about this stuff, you know? I mean, it's refined now. So this is not where I necessarily want to land this conversation, but just to take it out of sort of the, the starry-eyed, wow, we can do this to the like, oh my God, that means that we have orbital lasers and we could theoretically take someone out. What do you think? <laughs> so a lot of things. Yeah, no, I worry deeply, deeply about, and this is my interest in stories, like what is happening in terms of the stories that are washing through populations that are being manufactured to spread and so on, or are being found sort of in, in the wild and then amplified by you know certain agents or whatever. Maybe alluded to a little bit before, but I mean, the kinds of stories we have in the US now are not great. I mean, it's very divided. You really do have quite divided populace. And where does that lead in time? I'm pretty limited in 
my view of predictability for a little bit. We do have some stuff that you showed, but it's, I came up with a correlation the other day. I mean, it's sort of, it's a little bit along those lines. There's some predictability, but those numbers for geopolitical risk, they're pretty rough. They're pretty broad. It's not going to say there's going to be a protest in that town. It's nowhere near that kind of thing. But even if it did, I think there's, this would be good stuff to have out in the open so people could understand that this is what is being known about you. I mean, I, potentially about your, the population you live in. We're going to eventually figure it out, I suppose, but there's going to be huge limits to it. You know, we know we understand now for the weather, right? There's a sort of a two-week horizon. We get as much data as we want, uh, com- you know, computational power and all this sort of stuff. But we understand from dynamical systems, we just can't tell in two weeks, like in detail. That's going to be a limit. I'm really interested in where we'll get to with that for social phenomena, but I think it's going to be much more limited. I mean, there are so many shocks that come along. They're just shocks. And we then talk about them in history, but people don't anticipate certain things you know they really they, they really don't so from the sort of the whole sort of the story space that's that's emerged i mean how do you help people defend themselves against all these stories coming at them and there are different approaches that have been kind of understood you know i think from certain countries and cultures like one is flood the world with stories you know just just put out an enormous number of stories and essentially that are all competing with each other. So you can't figure out what's going on. It's like denial of service from a story point of view. And so that's a powerful thing. So if we had this sort of sensing thing that could tell you, here are the stories, they're coming from this place, they're being fed into the system, they appeared on this TV show, but here's where they nucleated from, no good, right? So it's absolutely an arms race. And I think of story wars. You have to have stories to get people to do all sorts of things. There's any number of quotes from history from people who have sort of figured this out, I suppose. So (laughs) I won't try to butcher them. But, you know, there's that. There's diversion by telling people, you know, happy stories all the time, like the American dream, right? That's a good story. Rags to riches, one of the most basic stories, you know, in terms of fundamental stories. That's it. Rags to riches. And it's just like, come here and, you know, go up the train. So cultures tell stories about themselves, you know. And I don't know what the U.S. will tell about itself in in years to come, but it's certainly dividing its stories now. They're, they're, they're kind of broken. I will say, I think we're terrible at understanding stories of collectives, and there are a few reasons. So this is the systems problem, right? And this is why we struggle with systems. We're really good at individual narratives. And journalists will do this all the time. People writing books will do this all the time. They'll frame a major event around an individual. So you can travel through in their shoes and get a sense for it. And then maybe step out. Religious sermons do this as well, right? There's sort of parables and things. They tell you about individuals. We're individuals. So, but it's much harder to understand 300 million people, like their collective behavior. You know, and this is why we've created all these simulations from the sort of simple toy model things to, you know, full-blown things. Like, we don't have a good understanding for how people behave in large collectives. They can seem strange because it is a different thing. But we do this mistake of imprinting individuals on top. And many people will be sort of comfortable if one individual was running the whole thing, right? And that manifests in various ways. There's religions, you know, the idea that Trump is in charge or Obama was in charge, you know, there's a, a hand at the wheel, Leviathan, because that fits into our limited cognitive capacity. So the stories of the many are outside of our mental frame, but just that what we sort of walk around with naturally. We have to really train ourselves to kind of understand them. So one other piece here to kind of go with that is we live in a really different age from, you know, whatever, the 1700s when in the US it takes months to get information from one side of the country to the other. And of course, it's only from one sort of few individuals to, to, to a few other individuals. It's not where we are now. Now we have live video and people in all around the world, principal can watch the same thing at the same time unfold. 
we have media that's spread out. We have some of that media is say big, like Fox or or CBS or something. They're, you know, they're big things that many people will watch. But there's local news that might be local, but is also tethered together because it's owned by the same group. You know, USA Today owns a lot of different newspapers. It's not to say they're a good or a bad actor, but they own it. So there's a correlation that's come about in what people see in the world, which is very different. So I come from rural Australia, from a farm, and we were always sort of at odds with cities, right? There's always like, oh, the cities get all the resources and no one cares about us. And they don't know what, you know, sheep are or food is, you know, you know, this is sort of that kind of battle. So, and when I sort of came to the US and understood this effort with the Electoral College to distribute power and to put capitals in small places and so on, you know, there's part of me that thought I can see that, right? And, and from a systems point of view, it's, a, it's clever, right? It's like spreading things out a little bit that allows for innovation, John Stewart years ago called it the, the meth labs of democracy. <laughs> but, you know, so <laughs> can work in different ways, but you need them to be acting independently. So, but if these different states, say in the US, are acting in a correlated way in terms of their information that they consume, then you've got a really different game. And that's really dangerous, right? The correlation of people's intakes, even though we're in this world where there is an infinite amount of information and there's all this stuff, you know, we, I talk about science as going from data scarce to data rich, right? This is a transition that, if it's really a science, we'll make. You know, we, and we talked about um, astrophysics early on, right? So, looking with your eye, trying to figure out, you know, and, and people figured out amazing things in the last couple of thousand years, right? But it took us a long time to get the whole ellipse stuff sorted out, you know, and then telescopes and then these you know, these giant arrays, you know, data scarce to data rich. So that transition, I think. You would think there's sort of this naive idea that I think a lot of people have was like, oh, you know, we'll be able to sort of sort everything out. But of course, what emerges on top of that, you have to have these managers of information because it becomes it becomes incredibly hard, right? Now you're looking for a needle in a stack of needles or a, or a, you know one piece of hay in, in an enormous amount of hay, right? Like it's just really hard. So you you go to you know authority figures or, or entertainment or whatever, and, and you, you consume from that. That starts to lead to many people being correlated. Hundreds of years ago, there's no way information transfers across countries. It just doesn't. So people are making their own judgments. Da, da, da. Uh, it's really the telegraph, I think, which is kind of a switch in terms of suddenly information going across at a distance. But I, you know, I, I see that as a grave problem. Um, but I, I, I guess I have this hope, which is probably. <laughs> but if we can kind of show, look, here is the tapestry of stories that are kind of floating around in the world and here's what's being consumed here's what's being spread here's their origin you know that that could help and i think it's really important as well just from a public policy point of view what what's going what is being discussed what is happening you, you've tried to do a good thing we've tried to institute you know wearing of masks we've tried to institute people doing certain things you know how are they talking about this kind of babe how do they talk about their city now is this a better place you know th so there's a good side and of course the terrible side is Something we have to explore and, of course, think about very deeply because there are many ways for things to go wrong and people are very clever. They'll find, find ways that you don't anticipate. So I'm, we're very mindful of that. But, you know, in terms of the control of people and that sort of thing, which is, you know, awful, you know, it's underway. It's happening. Just the rags to riches stories, you know, American dream. That is a, you know, it can be pretty soft. It's not like there's some, you know, person, you know, you know whatever it is. Um, you know, sort of inserting this information to every every person. But, you know, there is these stories that we're bound to that are, for better or worse, things that we that, that guide our lives.
So I do kind of at times think stories are everything, right? They're why we get out of bed. And when you kind of draw down, a lot of them are about, and I don't want to be too like Evo psychist, but I suppose, but you know, they're, they're about survival in some way. And like Kill the Monster, right? That's bear survival. Rags to Riches, that's flourishing, right? This is, things are great. You know, that, that's an arc we want to see. We're very interested in arcs where things go wrong as well, because they're, you know, they're the cautionary tales, right? But we are very preoccupied with survival. And I, I, it gets very elaborated. We get a long way away from, you know, like this sort of raw idea of survival. But I have this, this way of talking about what many stories are, are sort of revolve around is hatchings, matchings, and dispatchings, right? These are the three main events. And so we, you know, there's some aspect of that that's, uh, that, that, that's spreading around. And you think of the stories that are dominating the US now, say, you know, what Trump talks about, for example, a lot of them are pretty dire, right? There are some dire stories like, the country will end. Many different sort of groups will, will sort of frame it that way. Like it's going to be the, the end. So there's that sort of, that kind of frame, which is very different to the time where things are kind of building and we're kind of creating something fantastic and, you know, we're flourishing. So, yeah. Thoughts on that, you know, since one of the things that you point to in this paper at the, at the end on like, what could we be doing better? What could we do? You know, what, where is the research to expand? is gesturing at what you're talking about, which is the story taxonomy. In press, if it bleeds, it leads, sounds a whole lot like, well, you know, the killer whale is the keystone species of the ecosystem. And, you know, work by SFI professor John Hart and others, you know, have talked about the way that ecosystems are organized according to, they seem to follow the principle of maximal entropy production. Right, like a river basin, it's gonna, it's like the this, the network is gonna get as fractal as possible in order to to minimize the turbulence at its its branch points. You know, and I did my and, PhD and, on river networks, by the way. Oh, did you? Yeah. So yeah, 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 yeah. That whole thing, the branching <laughs> network stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this, you know, again to you know shout out like we seem to at every episode to to the conversation we had with Jeff West on this particular topic, and and so you know in a way it makes it seem like it would be a danger. What I hear is for there to be too much correlation, for there to be, hmm. you know, like monocropping, you know, yes, people, yes. right? Mono so stories, mono stories. Diversity of perspectives. We want a yes. diversity of stories. And then the question is, how do we actually study this rigorously? So, you know, we, you know, talking about you being from Australia, I can't help but think of the story that Aldous Huxley opens his essay, Heaven and Hell, talking about how when the first... European naturalists came back from Australia. Nobody believed them when they came back with a specimen of like a platypus. And they all, they had to rip it apart, autopsy it to see if they could find stitches. Well, too many of others had done that. They'd made a few, you know, yeah, yeah, like mirrors, right? Yeah. That kind of thing. Kind of a bad, kind of yeah, a bad history there. Yeah. Right. But so I'm, like, I'm a huge fan of the, the platypus. Platypus is a total champion animal. But there you go for predictability, you know. <laughs> Let's start with a bunch of quarks, right? Here, you've got a soup of quarks. Are you going to get a platypus out of that? I don't think so. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think actually there's a platypus in the uh, taxonomy of the cartoon animals of the Vermont Complex Systems Center, as I recall. There is, and, and, and there's probably a good reason for that. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. so, so um, you know, Al actually suggests in that riff of his that what the world needs is a new cadre of naturalists to perform the same duty of creating a taxonomy for the contents of the human mind. And it seems like this is really what you're getting at here. And that one of the things that stands in your way that you and your co-authors address in the Story Wrangler paper is the data that you do not have, 
which as you alluded to earlier in this conversation is like some of these Twitter accounts are corporate entities. Mm -hmm, sure. many, many of them are bots. They're not even human mm -hmm. beings. And <laughs> so, you know, to get a read on the noosphere from this is skewed, you know, like the, there's, yeah. you got a blind spot. And then also with geographical data, like presumably much of this data is available. Maybe Twitter just doesn't want to give it to you. Uh, They've actually dialed that down. You know, it used to be more, I mean, not great, but it used to be there and you could do something with it. But it's actually been dialed in, which I look, I think that's to their credit. That's yeah. Fine, to their credit. Like from a re researchers might be like, you know, upset, but no, I mean, they're making a service and I think that's actually smart of them to do that. Yeah. So you're right. So geo is a little less, is, is hazy and we've stepped away from, we've gone for language. You know, so there's a hundred languages in there. Right. You know, so that's not exactly a perfect fit because it's kind of two different questions, but like one is about the lacunae in your data and what kind of questions that begs. And then the other is how you're starting to tease apart this panoply of fantastical things that you're discovering and what a taxonomy of story is starting to look like in a rigorous yeah. sense. Eric, can you even start yeah. to guess at that? No, taxonomy of story is, is this, I don't know, I see that as a grand, a grand achievement of science. And, and look, it would vary from culture to culture and over time, but just being able to do that well. There have been efforts for a long time, and there was early efforts with um, folktales, which are, you know, and, you know, they're sort of that more bespoke by hand, you know, magical animals and extra magical trees, you know, there's sort of this list of, of things. But trying to do that in a data-driven way, I think, is, is, is this great, great challenge for us. So it's kind of coming. But I would say, you know, yes, Twitter is this limited thing. Also, it's enormous. So we're sort of, you know, it, it takes a lot of work to contend with it. But we've really tried to to look at other different corporate to sort of see, you know, to, to spread out. So Reddit is another one. Books are another one. Of course, there's video and pictures or this just enormous other array. It is, it's painstaking work. You have to be incredibly careful with this. And I mean, maybe we've messed things up, but we've tried so hard to, count everything and be really careful with this because I, I, I yeah, it's, it's tough. So I think the, the errors are not always really in the analysis. They're just in the corpora themselves that you've chosen, of course. I mean, just, just to sort of say that, that's quite obvious thing, but, but then they are also in your instruments as well. So we, well, for a hedonometer, for example, you know, the, it, it's not that the way that works is you know, we have a list of words that have scores attached to them for, for sort of on the happiness sadness spectrum. And what changes things is not really the scores. You know, the scores could be moved around a little bit. It's just which words are in the list. You know, have you, it's kind of like, are you looking through a red filter or a green filter? You know, if you're looking at colors, you know, or is it a bad lens? You know, that changes the story. But I will say one of the things that's, I know I say that a lot, that that's made help me particularly kind of move along with this is when we've thought to improve something by getting more data and improving an instrument in what feels like a way that you might improve a physical instrument, right? So we, we made telescopes, we made better lenses, you know, and that took a lot of time. And then, you know, 10 years later, we would make a better one with a more, you know, the, the curvature is, you know, more accurate and so on. We've been able to do that with language. And so that's, that's what, you know, we've, we've, uh, say for the hedonomy, a larger list of words that fits natural language better and having scores for it. It didn't give us a completely different picture, right? So there was this concern that I had early on that we would look, we would change the instrument, like try to improve it. 
and everything we saw before would go away. You know, it would be all kind of wrong. But actually, we could still see that, but we started to see much more definition. And we saw, um, so it had that kind of improvement, which is, oh, now we can see more finely in, in this photograph in front of us. And, and so that, 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 that was a good experience, right? I, I, and I, it makes me feel like some of what we're doing is a bit more like physical instruments, that there are tunable parameters associated with them, which is kind of like, you know, having a focal thing on the side. Anyway, that's, that's, that's. Bill, let's you tell the difference between a fish and a whale. That's where the two questions kind of align, right? Yeah. It's like, so how do we tell the story, you know, the difference between, um, you know, how do we, how do we, these stories, uh, here's a whole bunch of conspiracy stuff about flat earth or, you know, QAnon kind of things. Like how do we start to kind of tease them apart um, and, and see where they started? You know, time is, of course, time is this enormous thing for us, right? It's the big, the big sorting index. So just seeing when a word or a term comes into being is pretty powerful. And that, so even if we're using Twitter with something else, that's going to be this pretty good background information source. So QAnon, for example, when does that emerge? And, and like hashtag, you know, where we go one, we go all, that sort of thing. Like you can just see when it pops up. So then you could go out to other corporate as well or, or media sources and, and kind of try to analyze things there. Yeah. What are the stories that people tell? I mean, and do, you know, do people you know, give up on stories at some point. You know, there's, there's the rags, the riches stories we've talked about for, for the American dream, you know, that can be broken. You know, you, things go wrong for you and, and maybe, maybe that breaks. Maybe you move to a different story. Maybe a, you become more tied to a religious group that, that, that's more community oriented and helping and so on. Right. I mean, how do those, how do people you know, move around in, in kind of the stories of their lives and their communities, you know, the stories just about themselves versus everyone else. And, you know, what, there are, of course, the stories that, that uh, we like to read. You know, there's that whole world as well. You know, which ones animate us? You know, which ones, you know, it's sort of, and, and there's marketing on top of that. There are, there are sort of just standard stories that people will come back for, right? I mean, the Avengers or something like that. They, you know, they're I'm thinking, of, uh, thinking of, you know, Simon Dedeo just co-authored that piece uh, from probability to consilience. So I talk, yeah. Yeah, on you know the base base theorem, and and like you said, that there's the different kinds of simplicity that we seek, right? And yeah. and yeah, so it's that that sort of speaks to your you know which stories are persistent, are the stories that um, you know like insectivores survive a mass extinction, you know? But yeah, anyway, yeah, well, it's um, do you which stories do you miss completely? You know, we we're pretty. We're kind of funny when it comes to probabilistic stuff and random randomness, right? Sometimes we're good with it, but often it's completely bemusing to us or, or we miss it. You know, we see some sort of random behavior and we tell a story about it. And I th I think sometimes that's that's a pretty good sub survival trait of sorts because, you know, there's this old uh, sort of notion of it's it's good to make the mistake of seeing a, a rock or, a, or, you know, some sort of twig in the woods as a, as a, as a tiger, right? you know, because we think that thing has agency. But I would sort of, I would reframe that as saying, what we see is a story, right? We, we mistake this, because stories are dynamic things, right? There's time and something happens. And they, they could be just little plots and they're told in different ways. So there's the plot, which is the mechanic, and the story is the telling of it. You know, proverbs are stories, right? They're, algorithms are stories. There are lots of things that uh, you know, can be sort of seen in that way. 
but yeah, yeah, we see this this tiger is going to come out and eat us, and we imagine that, right? We run that little scenario, we run that little story. If we see a rock, we don't run it. You know, our story is just that it stays there. So, you know, I, I think we sort of you can talk about agency and all those things, but what we're running all this all, all the time are these little these little possible paths, and and you know, which one do we want to be on? And we're trying to guess that about other people. What paths are they taking, and so on, and what paths are you know, what path is this? Is your community taking? The world taking? Well, you know, I feel like we could continue to delve into this, and I would love to for a while. But I think that we've already we've already kind of consigned ourselves to this being a two parter. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, Peter, this has been you know truly fascinating. I wonder whether this is now seared into my memory or. Or whether I'm I'm going to just be you know uh, washed aside by the next sort of piece of sensational news and, and but I suspect that given all the editing this will require I'll be thinking about this conversation for some time. Do you uh, do you have any parting thoughts for people? You know I mean we've covered so much ground here, but are there trails through the, the this wood of connected ideas that we have not? traversed that you find worth identifying pointing to people on as they they walk out of this conversation perhaps or or where would you suggest you uh where would you direct people if they want to think about these things more deeply beyond of course your work the the dashboards and the papers we'll link to in the show notes yeah i it's it's interesting to bring up the the path through the the woods. Um, Philip Pullman has that when he talks about uh, sort of a notion that he, he actually I have this book. It's just on writing and stories, and and I was kind of delighted to hear him talk about that. Right. So, but his his view of that was you have to find that path through as the storyteller, right? And and I I have my own separate stuff there, and I think about adjacent stories and adjacent narratives, right? And that this is this. This is the problem, I think, for stories and for science in general. So let me just say this. This is, I think, an important thing. And Because we haven't really talked about the truth, right? And, you know, I don't think there are alternate worlds and all alternate. You know, there's, there's what happened. And there are true things. It's why the lights stay on, right? And all this sort of stuff, right? So, but the truth has been delegitimized in, in so many ways. So, so somehow we have to re-moor ourselves collectively to the truth. So that's the that's the great challenge, I think, now. It's an ongoing challenge forever. And I will say I think I'll have to stop that tick, but um the the problem we have as scientists and and say as journalists, you know, my wife's a journalist and I think of journalists as I say this a lot, scientists with a, a deadline and, and and scientists are journalists without one. You know, we're trying to we're trying to tell what happened and try to explain it. Right. So is that the there's what there is what happened and adjacent to that will be a better story. It'll be a story that might be better just simply to to tell, right? You you know, there's everything that happened in this event. Even if you want to be a good journalist, you, you've got, you know, you're gonna write three paragraphs. So you have to distill it and break it down. Or even if you have video, you're gonna break it down. So that it's already gonna be removed a little bit from exactly what happened. But then if you're a bad actor. You can work to find a story adjacent to this one that serves your purpose, that fits your overall narrative. Or you could find many and start to put them out and just sow these seeds out. So I think we have to protect the truth. We have to keep 
developing the truth, like reinforcing it, protecting it. This is the great challenge. And I, I think the really hard problem for us is that there are beautiful stories adjacent to true stories that spread better, that that people will, you know, believe much more easily because, you know, they they didn't have the weird random thing that happened in the real story. You know, real stories can have, you know, stuff that we want to iron out. So that's a that is a challenge for us. So so not to fall too far into beautiful stories. Stories need, you know, true stories have they're going to have some messiness in them. That's stuff that's hard to explain, perhaps. But we need to figure out how we can. You know, this is what science does, but we've lost it culturally. Like we need to get that back, mm. or reclaim it for the first claim it for the first time ever, perhaps. Yeah, yeah I think about uh, was Sabine Hassenfelder gave that talk, SFI community lectures about does beauty lead mathematics astray? And again, yes. that's you know to point to yes. Simon's thing about this is when our our desire for simplicity goes from being a virtue to a vice when yes. we pursue the beautiful story at the cost of truth. So truth and beauty, not connected. I just don't, I do, I don't want, I do not presume them to be connected at all. The truth can be told beautifully. And that's our challenge, right? We have to tell scientific truths beautifully so that they can compete. You know, it's still the truth, but we have to tell them in beautiful ways, ways that people want to spread them so that they can compete with you know, these mal stories, these, 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 these wrong stories. Yeah. Well, that's an awesome place to end it. I feel very validated in my science communication career by this conversation. Thank you, <laughs> Peter. It's, uh, it was just awesome to talk to you. I, I love these, these, uh, wandering discursive ambles through the, <laughs> the landscape of the mind. Uh, you are an excellent guide through that landscape. And I hope that people found this as interesting as I did and that they go and they twiddle around with the dashboards that you and your team have created because it is yeah. immensely curious to turn the, the telescope back down upon the human species and to gawk at what strange creatures we are and what we look like in aggregate. Thank you so much for being here today. Absolutely wonderful. I really I, I enjoyed it greatly. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu/podcast.